Hello and welcome to episode two of series six of the Family Law podcast from Pump Court Chambers. Slightly baffling that we've got to series six somehow, but there we go. Um, I'm joined today by Catherine Ellis, with whom regular listeners should be familiar. She's an expert in all things children, both public and private, and has previously spoken to the pod about fabricated or induced illness in children cases. She's desperate to say hello, so I'll let her go now. Hello, Mark. <laughs> um, and today, Catherine has kindly volunteered to speak to us about another difficult topic, which is cropping up increasingly after decisions like F&M in 2021, and that is coercive and controlling behaviour. So, Catherine, we're, we're going to tackle this thorny subject in the next 20 minutes or so, and I, I want to start with the real basic question. Uh, when we say coercive control, what do we actually mean? Well, actually, Mark, they are two different things. Um, the Domestic Abuse Act 2021 uh, and perhaps Direction 12J talk about controlling behaviour or coercive behaviour. And Practice Direction 12J, in fact, deals with them uh, with different definitions. Uh, it's paragraph three of Practice Direction 12J, um, which lists coercive behaviour as an act or pattern of acts of assault, threats, humiliation and intimidation or other abuse that is used to harm, punish or frighten the victim, whereas controlling behaviour is said to be an act or pattern of acts designed to make a person subordinate or de and or dependent by isolating them from sources of support, exploiting their resources and capacities for personal gain, depriving them of the means needed for independence, resistance and escape, and regulating their everyday behaviour. So there are slightly different um, terms used in terms of behaviour itself, but also in terms of the intention. So coercive behaviour, according to Practice Direction 12J, is used to harm, punish or frighten the victim, whereas controlling behaviour is designed to make them subordinate or, de or dependent. I suppose you do end up in a situation where you have coercive behaviour that is designed to control. Yes, often we find in the cases that we come across that they're interlinked uh, and you often um, or rarely, I would say, have one without the other. But but it does happen. Um, when you ask about what they are, um, I find there's a really helpful list um, in a judgment by Mr. Justice Hayden um, called F against M, which was a 2021 decision, uh, EWFC4, um, at paragraph 60 of that decision, which in fact I would say is perhaps the, the vanguard <laughs> to the re-HN decision that came along later, um, where really Scott schedules were, were flagged up as perhaps not being as helpful in this type of case as they are in others. Um, and in the FNM case, um, Mr Justice Hayden sets out at paragraph 60 a really long list of different types of behaviours um, that could be seen as controlling or coercive or, or really have the hallmarks of that sort of behaviour. So what I would say to um, those listening, if you have a case where you have a client who's coming in who's concerned about or, or um, who raises that they may have been controlled or coerced, have a look at that paragraph and keep it perhaps as a handy checklist when you're dealing with your clients. Um, in fact, I'd probably say do, do that before they come in <laughs> because one of the hallmarks of controlling and coercive uh, relationships is 
can be um, that the victim themselves doesn't necessarily always appreciate that some of the behaviour that's um, been going on isn't, in fact, normal behaviour. Yeah, we always have that, don't we, when the the the, the well the, the respondent to the allegations, I was about to say defendant, but we are in family proceedings, always says, but you never reported it before. And it's, it's because they didn't quite realise they were being abused at the time. Yes, and in fact, it even goes further than that. Um, as Mr Justice Hayden, also in FNM at paragraph 110, highlighted, it's another good line to cite if you're at Fahidra stage and you have a perhaps a sceptical tribunal, um, it, perhaps not wanting to hear your allegations. Paragraph 110 points out that it's also difficult for professionals to identify that type of abuse and to be more effective in their investigations. So you might be faced with a, a judge saying to you, well, Miss Ellis, Mr Ablett, um, the, the local authority didn't have any concerns about the, the relationship. They came and had, had a chat with the family. Uh, and that's where you might turn to, um, to F&M 110 and say, well, quite often they, they don't spot it. I'm mean, talking about sceptical judges. There is this issue. I'm choosing my words very carefully, but, but we there tend to be issues of the moment of the day. And I don't know about you, but at the moment, I am seeing pretty much every C1A I encounter alleges controlling or coercive or controlling coercive behaviour. And often, actually, what is alleged doesn't fit remotely with, with the checklist in FNM, which I agree is, 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 my, is my go-to as well. Is there a risk that it is becoming just something that people allege as a matter of course because they know it is the, the current trend is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Well, I, yes, I, I would use perhaps the term buzzword, um, although yep. that I wouldn't say that with the intention to minimise those, those no. people who have been victims of this type of behaviour. What has happened, I think, in the recent years is that we have become more aware of that type of behaviour. The authorities that we've touched on uh, already um, today um, have highlighted and brought to the fore that type of behaviour. Um, and then there is perhaps then a tendency for... Um, more people to raise behaviour that may or may not be controlling coercive behaviour. I mean, it is possible that previously, well, it is right that it, previously it was harder to prove or harder to make the court sit up and take note of this type of behaviour, whereas now it is seen as, or perhaps is a, a bit of a hot topic, and there is a risk that courts may find it too easily or may be asked to find it a bit too easily. And really, that's our job as lawyers really to, particularly if defending against those allegations, to say, well, this might be unpleasant behaviour, but it doesn't come within the definition um, within practice direction 12J. Um, in H re-HN, which you touched on as well, um, at paragraph 32, um, there's a quite helpful um, paragraph, if you're in the position of defending against allegations, um, that says that not all directive, assertive, stubborn or selfish behaviour will be abuse. Um, much will turn on the intention of the perpetrator of the alleged abuse and on the harmful impact of the behaviour. Um, so I think, yes, you're right. There may well be a tendency for um, controlling a coercive behaviour to be pleaded when perhaps it's not quite made out on the facts. Um, well, even, even before you get to pleaded, I, I think it's, it's alleged and then not not really pleading. We're going to come on to to, to pleading, but uh, anecdotally, how often in your experience you you pick up a fact finding or, or, or something like that? Are you actually seeing properly pleaded, controlling, coercive behaviour being run at the moment? Um, 
I'd say it's pretty limited so far. I think perhaps in practice, we're all just starting to get to grips with um, the repercussions of the re-HN case. Um, certainly the, the last few that I've had have still been working on Scott schedules, but there were other allegations that went alongside the coercive and controlling behaviour. So it's sometimes a little difficult to separate the two. Um, and yes, I, I think you're right. It, it may be that, that that solicitors, particularly, you have a client come into their office who's alleging a certain behaviour that solicitors maybe need to sit, to sit down, listen to their client and have a think themselves about whether the evidence of the intention and the harmful impact is there to back up what's said factually. Yeah. Um, I want to skip to the end for a minute. Um, mm. Let's assume that controlling behaviour or coercive behaviour both have been proven what what's the relevance to welfare because of course we're looking at this through the prism of private children proceedings and, and pd12j how does it carry through to the court's welfare analysis well in fact it ought to have quite a big impact on the court's welfare decisions in my view um that that may be controversial but i my i'm very much of the view that it's in fact more insidious and can in some ways be more damaging than very overt allegations of violence between the parents because we generally accept that children for their to, to promote their welfare need harmony, routine, a degree of stability, a, a clarity around boundaries that are going to be imposed for them, um, etc. And I've had cases where, for example, very young infants, um, this is during the relationship, but a very young infants were not fed properly overnight because um, in, in the cases I've had, it was the mother, she was incapacitated um, and, and had left a routine that was then not followed. And, and that's a very stark example, but um, there are others. You know, if a parent, if two parents um, are separated and one has the primary care and the child is moving to the other parent, but they have routines in place, if those routines are undermined, they can be quite damaging for the child. It can be quite a serious level. Um, if one parent is significantly subordinate, um, there can be a damaging effect on the child because, because, of the, because of the subordination, sometimes the child's needs are not brought to the fore and are not prioritised by the other parent, either because the subordinate parent is unable to raise these things or, or dictate the needs or because the dominant parent um, simply disregards what is brought up and, and that can be damaging for children's welfare for older children it can be uh, more psychologically damaging if uh, boundaries that are put in place or, or their relationship with the other parent is undermined um, so yes it's, it's often a hidden impact it's, it's not as obvious um, but the risks are there and I think the court has to be very careful where there has been findings of coercive behavior or controlling behavior to make sure that safeguards can be put in place to, to prevent those sorts of risks occurring. I mean, is it, it's obviously we're, we're concerned with the children's welfare, but it, harm that a parent has suffered is relevant to that parent's ability to then promote a child's welfare and, and meet needs. And uh, I use the word insidious, which I think was the word used by Mr. Justice Hayden in F&M as well. Mm. Um, it, is, it can cause really quite lasting damage to a parent, then takes quite a lot of time to, to recover from. Yes, and actually the, the case law does help us as well with this. Um, Re-HN uh, paragraph 31 is particularly helpful for the impact on the child or, or the other parent or the, the victim parent, if I can put it like that, um, um, arising from being in, in those sorts of relationships. Um, it says it can be as abusive 
or more abusive than any particular factual incident that might be written down. Uh, the harm to a child in an abusive household is not limited to cases of actual violence and sets out that where abusive behaviour has been directed against or witnessed by the child, or it causes the victim to be so frightened of provoking an outburst or a reaction from the perpetrator that they're unable to give priority to the needs of their child, or it creates an atmosphere of fear and anxiety. This is dealing within the home, which is inimical to the welfare of the child, but of course we're usually dealing with separated parents, but the atmosphere of fear and anxiety is still something that will be there for the, for the victim parent and, and that the child will inevitably pick up on. And then the final one, which is that, such behaviour risks inculcating, particularly in boys, a set of values which involve treating women as being in, un, inferior to men. And obviously that is uh, that would be arising when the controlling coercive behaviour is, is going particularly one way. Yes, as it sadly tends to. Um, I say sadly because of my agenda, but there we go. <laughs> um, so, okay, we know why it's, um, we, know, we know what it is and we know why it's bad. I want to get to the, probably the, the most nuanced element of it actually, which is how to plead it. And I, I've got two questions really. The first scenario is you pick up your brief for the FUDRA and it's a C1A that fairly blandly says controlling behaviour. You, you persuade a judge that, that you need to go to a fact-finding hearing. How do you then get it into fighting shape? Well, from from my perspective, I know that the, the REHN suggested that there were different ways that this may be done. One would be a narrative statement, I think was one of the suggestions, and the other would be a threshold style document, like as, as is seen in public law. And perhaps because of my um, the, my practice that, that is within the public law sphere, um, I lean quite heavily towards the threshold style <laughs> document, but also because I do find that they are clearer than a narrative statement. You, you would always need a narrative statement to back up your th threshold style document. But what I would really advise is going back to 12J, going back to FNM, the, the paragraph 60, the, the handy checklist, and think about what you're pleading. So the way that I would tend to work would be to plead one, X was coercive in the relationship by and then list some examples of um, perhaps using Hayden's um, helpful list at paragraph 60. Um, we have a look at something. So by um, monitoring uh, wise time, uh, monitoring her online via spyware, uh, taking her benefits and, and, and not allowing her access to them. Um, and, then, and then follow up with a sentence that says, and this was in order to frighten, punish, harm, etc. So you have pleaded the factual, um, the facts that you rely on, and then you plead the intent behind them, which is why you say they come to the come to the um, to, to meet the threshold of the coercive and controlling behaviour. And how many examples? I mean, I, may I suppose it depends on the case, but it, you've got that sort of headline allegation. How many sub-allegations in your experience are you using to then actually prove it? Are we talking five, ten? This is an interesting question because it is often assumed that in order to establish coercive or controlling behaviour, you need to establish a pattern, a pattern of acts. But actually, that's not what 12J says. Um, and it's not what the Domestic Abuse Act says. It says an act or pattern of acts. Now, in reality, I think we all know that it's actually quite difficult to establish that sort of relationship if you only have one incident, really. Yes. But... You never know. You may find yourself in that position and you can say to your tribunal, 
I don't need a patent. I have my one act. <laughs> However, in reality, you, you want to establish that this was how the relationship, how this is the dynamic within the relationship, and, and you are likely to need more than one um, fact. It goes to I, intent, really, doesn't it? The, this it, One act on its own could be of dubious intent. If there's a pattern, then it's much more likely it fits with intent. Exactly. It's much easier to prove the, the global um, allegation. So I would perhaps bulk at, at citing less than five examples but what I would probably if, if there are more than that because that often in these cases you do just have so many facts that your client wants to allege or that, that may well all be relevant um so it's if you're backing up your threshold style document with a narrative statement I think it is also fine to say please see my statement for a full list of, of scenarios um but in particular I rely on these five it, it gets difficult though, doesn't it? Because I mean, you, as you said, obviously, Scott schedules are, are in theory being consigned to the past. I mean, I, I still see them quite a lot. Um, I'm like you, I like a threshold document of sort of headline allegations and then sub allegations. But mm. let's say you have five sub allegations, but then you've got a narrative statement that includes more. When you're then asking the court to, to make findings, bearing in mind court time, time mm. estimate, you know, should you be allowed to go beyond your threshold document or, or or do we have to proceed on the basis there is more, but because court time is finite and resources are finite, I'm going to plead five and judge you if all five are found, then you should be satisfied. And if you're not, it's kind of unfair, isn't it? Because in theory, you've got more and you could go on all day, but, but you can't have a two week long fact finding hearing and everything else. No, but of course, I think what what we often find in these cases, in any event, is what what even in the in the times of Scott schedules, and I'm the same as you, I still see them, and I think for perhaps allegations of outright violence, they are they can be quite useful still. Um, we've all been in the position when the cross examination just goes way beyond what's pleaded in the Scott schedule, um, and judges have had to either try and restrict your cross examination time or. Uh, give the other party a fair opportunity to respond to, to additional matters. I think the point is about fairness, really, or the balance of fairness and proportionality. The respondent needs to be aware of what they are defending themselves against. Um, so it has to be set out somewhere. And it may well be that you you plead your five and you say, I also refer to paragraphs X, Y, and Z in my statement. Um, but in fact, that is the difficulty with coercive behavior and controlling behavior because actually there's usually quite a lot that you need to deal with um and often i have found in these cases that many times the factual basis isn't always disputed it often goes to intent and in fact so whether you've got five allegations or ten um really what you're you're going to be trying to get at in your cross-examination is why why that behavior was happening and what was the impact? Is there an argument really there to say almost almost a submissions point without evidence? But but you know, if the impact of the behavior on the victim was that they were controlled, then to an extent, how far does intent take you? Well, yes, although I suppose if, if you're acting for a perpetrator, the well, alleged perpetrator, the, the, the client may say, Well, that wasn't my intention at all. And in fact, that was how we discussed and agreed our relationship was going to, to be because my partner didn't feel as confident dealing with authorities or with the school or... or yeah, I suppose there's a, the, the, the common one that I see, and I'm sure you see quite a lot as well, is post-relationship breakdown, contact is being restricted. One parent sends 
100 WhatsApps um, and the recipient says, this is harassment. The other parent says, well, I'm being met with radio silence and I just want to see my child. Yeah. It's, it's quite nuanced. It, it, it is. And I think that is sometimes um, where you get to a situation when really you don't necessarily know or have much control over the outcome once your client gets into the witness box (laughs) because sometimes it does depend on how they deal with the questions that are put from the other side and sometimes you can be very surprised at how suddenly an attitude towards the other party appears in the witness box that you had never you never would have fathomed through your dealings with them (laughs) yeah it's always a terrifying moment as uh, in a trial um the second scenario that I wanted to to put and it's really not so much a scenario, but but if you get involved pre-C1A, what does a model C1A look like for you? Or is it really just a threshold document in C1A format? I think that's that's what I would advise. If I if I was brought in at an earlier stage, then I might sit down with the client, have a conference, and try and flesh out where my how my threshold document would be formulated. And that obviously is going to be helpful because if you can set things up at C1A stage in the way that you're going to conduct the case all the way through, that's always going to be a benefit to both the court and to your client. Um, because we are also in that situation where we've we had WeHN, but then we had KNK, we had the 5th of May right. guidance and, and we sort of went from ordering fact findings every time someone made any allegation to now mm-hmm. it, it's been quite hard at times to actually persuade a judge that a fact finding hearing is required. Yeah. And and I think that that is it, it should be right. I think, yes, you're right. You have to be able to say what the impact is on the client and on the child, really, um, at an early stage. And I think that is probably the headline advice I'd give to anyone when preparing their C1A. OK. And then sort of moving forward, the last topic is obviously we, we, we know what it is. We've pleaded our case, then building evidence, gathering that kind of thing. Are there any tips or pointers you have for our listeners? Well, I think it's it's the same as really in any other case um, in that you're looking to find any corroborative evidence that you can to back up what you're saying. I mean, sometimes that can be bank statements or um, mobile phone records or uh, when I say mobile phone records, I'm not talking so much about um, communication, although that actually can be quite telling in, at times. Um, but things like where the direct debits were coming out from, um, things like that. Um one of the cases that I'm struggling to to recall which one it was <laughs> talked about how actually the evidence of the parents would be much more key than um, extraneous witnesses. Um, I find that a little harder to reconcile with um, what has actually happened in some of those cases we've been talking about. I mean, um, F against M. In fact, the, the the evidence of the grandparents was was really quite key in establishing um, really the, the dynamic. Um, Ah, yes, I found it now. It was that comment was made, in fact, by Mr. Justice Cobb in a case called ReBB, which is a 2022 case, EWHC 108, and it's paragraph six, Roman numeral five, um, talking about the evidence of the principal parties being far more valuable. Um, I wonder if that was aimed really at um, the statements that we sometimes see from friends and family just saying, oh, they seemed really happy there's no no issues that that, that sort of thing and I, I think all the the character references which do have a place don't get me wrong but are less likely to go to the factual issues I, I think if you do have corroboration from family member or friends of for example 
excessive messaging or, or calling when one party is is away from their partner or I mean some of the behavior in the re-FM case was was mm. quite disturbing uh, and the grandparents were able to give evidence of that I think the the, the telephone call that the the, the uh, female was forced to make to her parents against her wishes when she just found out that she was pregnant those, those sorts of things are, so I, I don't think we should shy away from looking to corroborative evidence from other people uh, where it's it, as they, you put it in and then at the PTR if the judge decides that it's not helpful then so be it but you've put it in haven't you yes of course but just be mindful of, of how probative in fact it is um, I, I think that's a key point I always like this is my my plug and I'm not on commission or anything, but the, but early this year I I read a book called um put it in front of me to get it right in control dangerous relationships and how they end in murder by Jane Monkton Smith who's a, a criminologist and obviously we're not talking about murder but she has this eight stage pattern for identifying controlling behaviour obviously then how it leads to murder but the early stages I actually found really useful in a case I did this year in terms of framing my submissions and my cross-examination actually and kind of creating themes because the first stage is a history of control or stalking yeah. um, and I suppose then you're looking at evidence from prior relationships stage two is the commitment whirlwind if it all happens very quickly yeah. stage three is living with control and then stage four is trigger and that uh, is is more when you start to get to the sort of physical side of things but even those first three stages I find actually extremely helpful in terms of then framing your case around that and mm -hmm. having a theme to evidence yes I that sounds like a really useful book I think I'm going to have to give it a read <laughs> I, I would honestly I would recommend it it's slightly concerning reading on the tube when you you get some funny looks but it's, <laughs> it's really good um anyway look I, I think Catherine that's probably as many trade secrets as you're willing to give away for free <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, so I'll wrap things up and um, thank you very much really appreciate it thank you Mark it's been enjoyable good um and listeners I hope you continue to enjoy series six as it wends its way to your ears between now and Christmas as always Tara and I are grateful for feedback and our emails are on the website until next time goodbye mm -hmm.